Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. We'll get into tonight's study. And this is a new, um, a new section of text. We finished the first chapter. So I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Starting in verse 1, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, but their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit. Isn't that good to know? That, you know, we can be that way with others around the world. Rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Are, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this midweek respite to meet and to open your word together. We ask, Lord, that you would just uh, clear the distractions of the day, clear anything, Lord, that would hinder the work of your spirit. Uh, Lord, do a work of cleansing even now. Lord, forgive us of, of sin or anything, Lord, that, uh, that we have allowed to fester even throughout the day today. We ask that you'd wash us, purify us, wash us by your spirit and by the blood and by your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd knit us together, even as the text talks about here tonight. Uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, we would decrease and that you would increase, and, Lord, that you would do your work that you planned. Even before the foundation of the world, you knew we would meet here tonight, and, Lord, you would just perfect us and make us more complete in the image of Jesus. We thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we left off in chapter 1, finishing chapter 1. Uh, understanding some of the reasons why, as believers, we suffer, if you recall uh, our time in the Word last week, and how the call of stewardship in our lives uh, keeps us focused on the will of God, that we have to have a mission, keeps us focused, and how our appreciation of the salvation we've received serves as a motivation for our witness and the power of the Spirit being that witness through us. I mean, we, we, we do want to have a motivation, but we also want the Spirit to take and anoint that motivation. So it's not enough to just desire something. We need God's help uh, to be effective. Tonight, we're looking at the characteristics of a living body. Uh, we're talking spiritually here, a spiritually living body, uh, the body of Christ, and, and what an individual believer or church looks like like as Christ is flowing through us, as Christ is uh, flowing through us individually, but also collectively as a church body. And what Paul starts with here is love. 
It's what Jesus said the world would even recognize when the world looks at us that the world would see genuine love. John 13, 35. You know this passage. I quote it often. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I mean, the world can see what real love is. They can see selfishness. They can see what is genuine. They can see when we really care about one another. But just like a beating heart is proof that we're alive, the evidence of love is proof that we're spiritually alive. That evidence of love. And because Jesus is love, would you all agree with that? That Jesus is love. We know the Bible says God is love. Of course, Christ is as well. His life and his death are the demonstration of love. It is imperative in us and in the church. And remember, the church is his hands and his feet on the earth. That the church is walking this earth in Christ. Robert Murray McChain, he said this. He said, the love of Christ is like the blue sky, into which you may see clearly, but the real vastness of which you cannot measure. And isn't that true? We can, we can see the blueness, but we really can't see the depth of it all. We just kind of see the color. We may not be able to see all of it. We may not be able to measure all of it, but we are called to enter into it. I'm speaking of the love of Christ. And to experience it and to grow in it. Matter of fact, if we don't experience the love of Christ, we're not going to be able to grow in it. Amen? We have to personally experience the love of Christ. We can't just explain it to other people. I don't know how that advanced, but that's great. I didn't even touch it. Technology is getting so good, you think it, and it happens. Not really, because we've had some technology snafus around here, here and there. Uh, but now that this has already popped up, you're taking notes. Uh, the first thing we'll look at in verses 1 through 5 here, growing in love. Growing in love. In these opening words of chapter 2, Paul is, is, is expressing his affection and his burden for the body of believers in Colossae. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you, as he says in verse 1. Uh, and as many have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love. Paul expressing here this affection, I, I mention often that you can't fake genuine, right? You know when people are being real. You know when there's a, a genuineness of their love. And I think without question, Paul's heart would have been vividly conveyed when this letter was originally read. So when they received the letter and they read the words from Paul, they feel what he's writing. They feel the genuineness of his love. Now, if you're with us uh, for the opening of this study, you'll recall that it's possible that Paul had never even been to Colossae. We don't know that for sure. My personal guess is that he had been there, if only briefly passing through. My, that's my personal belief, that he had at least made it there. What's fairly certain is that Paul did not establish this church, although he was very familiar with what was happening there, and he knew obviously, some of the leaders of that church. Additionally, we know from Paul's own words here that although he knows some of, and perhaps all the church leaders, again, we don't know one way or the other, uh, there in Colossae, a percentage of the church 
definitely has not met Paul. A percent of the church does not know Paul. Yet, look at the love Paul expresses for them all, whether he's met them or not. Let me ask you a question. Can you have a deep affection for people you've never met? What do you all think? Can you have a deep affection for people you have never met? Do you have a love and affection for people that you've never met? Say, I've never met these people over in Guatemala, but I feel like I already love them, or in India, or in Uganda, as we've been talking about recently. We can because God has met them, right? God's already met them. We know that our Father knows them, then we can feel like, well, I feel like I know them in spirit, as Paul talks about. And think about this. If they're lost, God has already sent his son to die for them. God so loves the what? World, everyone, whether we've met them or not. If they've come to saving faith, now we have the same father and we're in the same family. So either way, we know God's really connected and interested and loves them personally. And we have a connection with God. So in either case, we can love people we've never seen or never met. We can. We can actually have that love for them. Now, of course, Paul is writing to believers and members of the body of Christ. So he is writing to a church. He's writing to people who are in the family of God, who have come to saving faith. As Paul is writing to them, this term he uses, he says, I have a great conflict for you. A great conflict. This is a term that was used to describe competing in the ancient Greek games. And this Paul uses this in other, other writings, other epistles. Um, it means you know, these games that were for a prize, to compete for that prize. And Paul is saying, what he's saying here is, I, I have given tremendous effort on behalf of your growth. That's what he's saying. I've worked really hard that you guys would grow. Now, if you study Paul, would you think that that's a fair statement? That he worked really hard for other people to grow? Yeah, definitely a, definitely a factual statement. I don't know that you'll find anyone in Scripture who's ever worked harder to see people grow in their faith. It's labored like he did. It reminds me of the words of the Apostle John in 3 John uh, chapter 1, verse 4, where John says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth. That was John. Everything he worked for. Now think about that statement. Could you say that the thing that makes you the most joyful is to see people that you're connected to, that you're pouring into? It can start with your kids. It can be your grandkids. It can be people that you're ministering to here. It can be people that you're in fellowship with. Can you make the statement that nothing brings you more joy than to see them growing in the Lord? That's what Paul says. That's what the whole church needs to get to. That's what everyone needs to get to. That that would bring us the most joy. But the reality is, now people, people mistake joy for happiness all the time, right? They think, you know, what would make me most fulfilled 
$100,000 in the bank account. Would make me the most fulfilled, perfect life, no problems. What would make me most fulfilled, perfect health? Jesus would say, not true, not true, not true. Remember that Jesus gave the apostles peace, or he taught them this. At first, they didn't have it. Not without storms, but in storms. Amen? That's what he taught. I mean, in, in his earthly ministry, he let storms come upon them. Remember, they were shaking with fear and uh, things that they couldn't solve, demons they couldn't cast out. But he's saying this, this, what you really need is to abide in me and to grow in this love. And so they came to the place that not only were they growing in love, but their desire as they became apostles. And, of course, Paul wasn't on the scene when Jesus was, you know, he came later. He was one born out of time, he said, that when, as it relates to being an apostle. But both Paul and John would later have that affection for the church that say more than anything else, we're not looking for personal success. We're looking that you guys would grow in the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, my desire, my conflict, my fighting, what makes me sweat, what makes me work, is that you would grow in love for one another. In verse 2, he says, uh, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, and attaining to all riches and all the full assurance, the understanding of knowledge and mystery of God. Striving, desiring, working very hard. Now, he says here um, in verse 2, again, these hearts would be encouraged. What does that mean? The, the encouragement here in the Greek, uh, comforted and strengthened. Comforted and strengthened. Which one do you want? Yes, exactly. You want comfort and you want strength. It's a very strong, it's a, it's a very rich word. Knit together, he said that you would be, uh, together you would be comforted and strengthened. So uh, Jesus is the good what? Shepherd. And he would comfort and strengthen the flock. And then he has under shepherds, the apostles, pastors, teachers, that are supposed to do the same thing, comfort and strengthen. But he goes on, he says that their hearts, and again, he's writing to the church there in Colossae, um, there in Central Asia. You have Turkey in your mind there, right? Go uh, east from the coast there, about the center, over about 100 miles or so. And um, so he's writing to the church there in that region, Laodicea also in that area. And he goes on, he says, being knit together as well. So not only would comfort and strengthen, and that comes from God, ultimately, that God gives us comfort, God gives us strength, but also knit together, that the church, even though we're individual, we're to become one. One of the problems today uh, with people's understanding of the gospel is people do have an understanding that they need to be individually saved. So when you, when you preach the gospel, you say, like we did on Easter Sunday, an altar call saying, if you never receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, come to Christ, ask him to cleanse you and forgive your sins. That is a personal decision. That's true. But that's not the whole story. Jesus, in his prayer, he said, our 
He said, when we pray, this is personal prayer. This isn't even corporate prayer. They said, teach us how to pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father. Didn't say my. Now, it is, he is our personal Father. But Jesus uses the inclusive of our, thy what? Kingdom come. The essence of the gospel is not only that we are saved, and that's, that's the first and primary thing, but that we're saved into a corporate un unity that we become one. And then the mission of our life is not say, well, now that I'm saved, this is, this is a misnomer a lot of people have. I'm saved. Now I can go back and focus on my success, my own wishes and desires, everything I need. is. I have this certificate in heaven that says I'm saved, so now I can, uh, if I never get a chance to serve God in any way, that doesn't matter because I just needed salvation. That's not what Jesus said. He says, our Father. You've got to be together with the body of Christ. It's not like one sheep can hang out over here and the other hang, others all hang together. All the sheep were supposed to be together. Thy kingdom come, the whole plan, which Paul's writing to a church, he's writing to a, a body of believers, is the plan was that they would all be doing the work of the kingdom together. Right? If you're hired by a major company, they expect you to be working towards the common goal. You don't get hired by a company and say, mail my check to here, and I plan on showing up a couple times a year. Is that okay? <laughs> no, no, no. They say, you, you're missed the point. We did hire you individually. That's true. We hired you individually. We're not sending your check to 10 other people. We're only sending it to you. But guess what? You're going to need to work with the whole team. Well, I don't really, I'm not really a team player, but I love paychecks. I don't really want to do the kind of unity thing. I don't want to go to the team function. I don't really want to have lunch with the employees. I don't want to do all that, but I do really want the check, and I promise I'll do great work from home. Makes it. No, no one thinks that's reasonable, but Jesus says, I've brought you in. And so Paul is saying, now that you're together, you're going to have to grow in love for one another. That's why... Uh, the scriptures say love covers a multitude of sins because the closer confines you come to work with other people, you will get your toes stepped on at times. You're going to get your feelings hurt every now and then. It happens in regular families too, doesn't it? Does your family have no issues ever? Love, love has to overcome those things. And to be knit together, you've got to sometimes re-stitch together a little bit. Things will get kind of frayed, and you have to swallow your pride and put things aside and say, we need to make this right to stay knit together. Your heart's encouraged, comfort and strengthened, but also knit together. This means united and with the same opinion. You know, the world may have 50 opinions on things, but God says when it comes to the spiritual realm, I want you to come to the same opinion on things that really matter. Like we would have the same opinion in this, this respect. You might have a different opinion on what color the carpet should be. Who cares? I mean, in the scheme of eternity, that's not a big deal. But we should have the same opinion that unsaved people matter more than the color of the carpet. That we should have the exact same opinion on. 
There shouldn't be any wavering on that. Same opinion. Attaining, he says, uh, attaining to the riches of the full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God. So attaining or coming to a place of assurance or confidence. Isn't it nice when you have confidence? When you have confidence in something. I am confident that the car won't break down. That's always a good feeling, isn't it? It's really a bad feeling when you're not confident that the car isn't going to break down. Should we take this trip? How many miles is it? If it's two, you're not that worried. If it's 200, you're concerned, right? Big difference. Confidence combined, he says that you would have a full assurance or confidence. Confidence of the understanding, which so combined with and this, uh, these, this term um, put together, it means a precise and growing understanding. A precise and growing understanding of things that are hidden or veiled from the non-believing world. Related to God our Father and Jesus our Messiah. So uh, it, we, we, we're just as amazed years after salvation that Jesus has come in the flesh, that he really walked this earth. And he did all the things that we read. And he preached and taught all the things that he said. And he rose from the dead. We see all that. But we not only see it, but we believe it just as much as we believe in the sun that we can see outside, the trees we can see outside. We, we know they exist, and we know that this mystery of our salvation has been revealed to us. And it gives us a confidence. It gives us an assurance. Now, to put this into a more concise perspective, uh, this is a depth of horizontal love and encouragement within the body of believers, but also a depth and unity of love vertically with God, our Father. And that takes place in the inner man, in our uh, inner man, in our inner spirit communion with the Lord, the Holy Spirit ministering to our spirit as only God can. We can minister one to another and that's that horizontal love that's very important. But it has a limit. There's a vertical that only God can satisfy. But yet you don't get one without the other. We need personal salvation, but we need to be brought into the kingdom work of the gospel as well. The disciples were saved individually, but we refer to them commonly as the 12 for a reason. Because they were a collective unit, but yet they were 12 individual men. The Old Testament, Israel was one nation but 12 individual tribes. Very different individual tribes, I might add. But yet they were one. It's impossible to be apathetic or out of fellowship with people if we're in fellowship with God. If you're really, I mean, you meet a person that's in love with God, they're going to be in love with the people of God. I'll say that again. If you meet a person that's in love with God, you will meet a person in love with the people of God. Every time. You'll never meet a person that's just filled with the Holy Spirit that says, but I don't like, I don't like hanging out with the church. 
I, I, I would rather watch TV. I'd rather be doing my own thing. I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be doing a hobby. I'd rather be, not that those things, we, we can like those things, but they don't replace fellowship with the body of Christ. Matter of fact, you might want to do some of those things with people in the body of Christ, because that could be great fellowship, but not say, no, I, I, I don't really need the people of God. I just need God. No, a close relationship with God will always result in seeing the need in relationship with one another. 1 John 4.20, the Apostle John again, he said, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? John just says, this is an obvious question. If you've been born in the family of God, John says, you're going to love your brothers and sisters. So John said, don't tell me you love God, but you don't love the body. You're fooling yourself. You don't really love God, nor do you love the people of God. But when we do love God, we will love the people of God. We will make time for the people of God. We will prioritize to be together, to grow together, to be in a relationship where we love and help one another. You know, the, uh, Paul wrote, um, you know, I, I haven't read this one book yet. I, I, I'm getting, does anyone else have a, like a list of books you're trying to get to? Uh, so I've got, I've got my list I'm on, and then I've got this stack that I want to get to. But I've read little pieces of this one book called God and Money. Uh, it, it fascinates me because uh, the guys had met at Harvard Business School, and they studied, um, they studied uh, every, they met at Harvard they wanted to go on and make big-time money and be super successful and all this stuff. And then they um, got into a Bible study, and they started to st study everything in the Bible about money. And they realized that the conclusion they came up to was how off-base the general perspective of most people in the American church is as it relates. And they realized that they kind of said that we, we don't want to pursue wealth, we want to give away as much as we possibly can of what God blesses us with and stay in a very moderate band of living and not just say, now we're millionaires, five millionaires, ten millionaires, twenty millionaires, because two, two really bright guys that could, a lot of people can produce money. A lot of people have the ability, they just know how to do it. And yet, that's not they just realized that was not the focus. So I haven't even read the whole book. I've read excerpts, uh, little bits of it. But Paul talks about this, this uh, the fact that when he writes um, and says, for example, those of you that are wealthy, be, be helping those that, that aren't. And him who used to steal, now that you don't steal anymore, now you have work with your hands that you might have something to give, that the whole reason that Christ has given to us is that we would become givers, givers of our time, givers of our talent, and givers of our treasure, because that's all we have. There's nothing else we have to give. Our time, the gifts and talents God's given us, and the resources he's given us. None of a, so someone says, well, I have gifts, but I don't have time to use them on anybody because I'm working on this, or I have um, time but I don't have time for anybody because my life's too important. Or I have money, but I can't give it to you because I'm trying to get the dream car in my lifetime. 
I can't help it. Again, that's not love. Jesus gave what? Everything. I'm not saying it's wrong to have stuff. I'm not saying it's wrong not to ever have any solitude time or anything else or even that you're supposed to be using your gift 24-7. You've got to sleep. You've got to spend time with your family. But the Lord will show us what a balanced love life looks like. Amen? He'll show us. So we're to be growing in love and growing with one another. Uh, look at verses 4 and 5 real quick for two more observations of love, at least as God defines it. Now this I say, uh, lest anyone deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. True love warns and protects people from deception. A good parent warns their kids. Amen? Amen? True love warns, but it also protects. So Paul says, now this I say, lest anyone deceive you. The enemy is always trying to deceive people, trying to deceive the body of Christ, trying to deceive individuals, trying to deceive families, young people, college-age people. Paul says, Part of my job in loving you is to make sure I tell you the truth, to make sure I say, no, no, that's, that might sound really good, but that's, that's not true. That's deceptive. There's a lot of things that sound good, but they're not good. And he also protects. Love also warns and reminds where he says here, though I'm absent in the flesh, I'm with you in spirit rejoicing in your good order. Paul's, and this is like, this is more like, so you have the coach that says, this is where warning and exhortation go hand in hand. A good coach says, son, you do that again, you're getting yanked from the field. That's a warning, right? right. Coaches do that. You don't say, well, that, that guy should never coach again. How dare he say something so inconsiderate? We respect the men that, and women that coach like that. Well, of course, they, they demand excellence. Son, you do that, or young lady, you do that again, you're coming off the court. Bottom line. Okay, that gets your attention, right? The other side is the coach who says, this is exhortation, where Paul says, I'm rejoicing in your steadfast. The other side is the coach saying, you can do this. You got this. You can do it. You can reach the finish line. So you have exhortation and warning. But real love does both, amen? That's what we're saying here. It's, Paul is exhibiting that. Let's take a look at the next. Um, and oh, One last thing on here where he says, though I'm not with you in spirit, uh, distance is not relevant. We can, especially today, we've had, we have the technology to touch people's lives no matter where they live in the world. We can be connected with people. The distance, you can, Paul wrote a letter, who knows how long it takes to get there. But distance isn't relevant. We can invest in people and connect with them. And again, many of these people Paul had never seen face-to-face, -face, and yet he still wants to encourage them and warn them and build them up. Let's take a look at the next couple of verses, verses 6 through 8. Walking in faith, if you're taking notes. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. It's absolutely true that our faith is in our hearts and our minds. Faith is not something you can literally hold, right? I mean, you can't paint a picture of faith. You can't 
eat faith. You can't smell faith. It's not visible to the senses. It's happening at the spirit level, right? Faith is something where God is speaking to our spirit, and we believe, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him righteousness. Belief is not something that you can draw a picture of. It happens in the heart. So we read, and we feed on the word of God, where? In our minds, right? We're told to meditate on the scripture. It means to chew on something, right? To chew on it. Good way to know what you meditate on is what happens in your mind when you've got nothing else to think about. What do you think about? When you're, quote, unquote, bored. Today, people meditate on their phones. They meditate on social media. They meditate on programming, radio. There's a reason why the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. To be silent sometimes. Matter of fact, to start, the whole body of Christ needs to start to practice silence before, so we can just hear God. Take a few verses, and, and it, the, 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 the longer I'm saved, the less I feel the, uh, I don't feel any kind of uh, incredible bondage to, boy, I, if I didn't read X number of verses, I didn't really study the Bible today. I would rather chew on a few than read 40, and I can't tell you one, word, one verse I read. But I crossed it off the list, right? Now, we want to feed on the Word of God, to meditate on it, to chew on it, to take these things, and, and that's where God transforms our mind. The renewing of our mind comes through Scripture. We pray in our minds. We talk to God in our minds. And we don't have to even have words coming out. We can be riding down the road, and we're talking to God, right? He hears everything. It, when I have opportunities to speak out loud, I like to audibly talk to God in certain Settings, but other times that's people don't know what you're doing. So you you know, uh, you giving directions? No, 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 I'm getting directions uh, right now. So but we pray in our minds, personally and privately. Christ dwells in our hearts, and we we dwell in Him. And we fix our spiritual eyes on Him. But even as we're to think through and work through our faith with communion, again, that's the, our spirit communing with God and intimacy with Christ. As you therefore have received Christ, again, uh, we, we don't, when we've received Christ, I can't pull a visible Jesus out and show a person. That's why they say, you Christians believe you have, you, you can't show me anything. I can't literally pull out a Jewish Jesus and put him right there and say, there he is, he lives in... Right? Paul says, if you've received Christ, how do you prove to someone you've received Christ? You can't pull a holograph out and pop it up there and say, that's proof. That's just, that was in me. Now I slide out. There's the Lord. Can't do that. But even though we commune with Lord, we have him living in us as you've received Christ Jesus. We have the intimacy with Christ Paul's saying, now you've got to walk it out publicly. That's the only way they'll see Christ. I have this great prayer life, me and the Lord, 
but I don't ever go out into the world and connect with people. Paul said, now that you've received, you've got to walk in him. You've got to publicly walk for the Lord. Why? Well, it's all pieces of the same puzzle. We cannot be rooted and built up without abiding in Christ. We have to abide in him. That in and of itself is the biggest part of walking in him. If we don't abide in Christ, we'll never walk in Christ. So we, we, have, to get the fir- we have to get the first step out of the block right. We have to abide in him or there's not going to be a walk in him. We cannot be established in the faith without being in his word, meditating on his word, praying through his word, hearing from the word like you're doing tonight, just sitting under the word. All these things are important in our walk. Learning and believing the truth we're receiving, both in your personal study and and as you sit under study and maybe you listen to teaching on the radio, all those things are important. This is faith building. But the warning in verse 8, I'm sorry, um, yeah, well, there is a warning in verse 8. Beware lest any of you cheat, uh, anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Uh, in verse 8 here, Paul warns uh, that we have to stay in the truth, but away from untruth. That's important. But abounding, so even though we stay, we, we stay away from things that are deceptive and untrue, and we stay in this abiding with Christ, in this communion, but are abounding, <coughs> the abounding of our walk with Christ, as he says in verse 7, abounding in it with thanksgiving, rooted up, built. We're rooted up and built by the word, but established in the, in the intimacy of our walk, but abounding in it, walking in it, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Well, that's an outward testimony of our life. It's an outward testimony. Our walk starts with our personal walk with Jesus. But it then becomes contagious, visible to other people. I, I, I've been, you know, it's just the Lord. I, I'm thankful that I've, over the years, met people that will tell me, I can't even, I can't even think of you uh, cursing or doing this or doing that. I'm like, hey, you should have met me 20 years ago. Me and you would have been tight, you know, uh, but now... I still like you, but we're not going to be as tight because you're not going to... You know, when the non-believing world, they might, at first they might love, like you a lot, and then if you really do walk with the Lord, your light shines a little too bright. And that's making them uncomfortable. So you've got to find someone that's not going to make them uncomfortable. On the flip side, there's people that are really thirsty and will be drawn to your faith that really are at a place where God's been, God's got them on the line, right? And they're being reeled in, right? And then they meet you and you're like, tell me more about what God's doing. I'm thirsty. I can't find peace. So our life should be contagious. Walk in him that people would be able to see The life of Christ lived out through us. Again, even people that might be uncomfortable with you 
when really when crisis hits, guess who they're coming to if they see a walk in you? You. You've probably all had this experience where someone says, hey, uh, I know you're kind of really religious. Can you pray for me or something in my family or something like that? I'm like, when have you ever asked it? But at that moment, they can see the light of Christ. But if you don't have a walk, they won't ask you. They might walk. You'll be really feeling, oh, well, this isn't good. If they bypass you and go ask some other person in the office who is a Christian, they bypass. I wouldn't ask you because I don't see anything in you. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That Jesus said your light would shine enough that people would know what you, again, not, not that, hey, I'm really, I'm really spiritual. No, they should know you're approachable, humble, genuine, authentic, caring, that you really would, if they needed time, you'd give it. If they needed help, you'd help. That's walking out our faith. Last point of the evening, verses 9 and 10. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Paul declares here that the aspect of the Trinity, he says, for in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When you think about the Trinity, Paul is saying here, every aspect of the three and one, every aspect of the three and one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Paul says all of anything that is found in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it is all found in the risen body of Jesus Christ. Every part of the Godhead. Look at the verse yourself, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, all three members of the Trinity. This was, of course, the case before the resurrection as well. We all understand that, right? This wasn't just, well, after the resurrection. This No, no, Jesus, even before the resurrection, all the fullness of God already dwelt in him. Jesus said before he went to the cross in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. This is before he went to the cross. Everything God is, he is in, in Christ. Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. He made this testimony. This infuriated the religious leaders. Remember, this was the blasphemy that they ended up executing him for. This infuriated them that, that Jesus would make himself not only equal to God, but say he was God. Hear Paul saying the same thing. And there was a time when Paul didn't believe this either because he was executing people for this belief. But he was fully convinced when he met Jesus face to face. He couldn't even see. All the fullness of the Almighty God, all the fullness of the Sovereign Creator, all the fullness of the Holy Spirit is found in Jesus. All found in Christ. People that kind of like, uh, like to use... Jesus' name in vain, or like, you know, consider him like, uh, you know, some guy walking around the Galilee right now in bare feet. Have, they're in for a rude awakening if they were to meet him right now in that kind of thinking. Of course, that's not what we want. We want everyone to come to know the Lord, but the risen Christ, all the fullness of God, 
the wonderful things, but also the wrath and power of God. It's all there in Christ, everything. 1 John 5, 6, and 7, John writes, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. But John makes clear, this is he who is that three in one. That's what he said, the one who came, born of flesh like us, water and blood, made of the same elements we're made of. Jesus came, but he is the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And the body and person of Christ is all the power, all the glory, all the presence of God, all the wisdom of God, all the holiness of God, all the Spirit of God in one visible. We can, we can see Jesus after he rose from the dead. The apostles and the women there, they saw him. You know, the Bible says no one's seen God at any time, at least not in our... In, we, we will see God the Father in our perfected state, but you can't really look at God in this body and live, right? Be spirit and truth. But Jesus was visible in his resurrection. He was visible for the resurrection. And that's why Paul notices that he uses the word bodily. That's not, you know, no words are in here by accident. Bodily, he says the risen body of Jesus... The incarnation of God, all the fullness of God, resides in the body. Now, everything is one in him. This doctrinal truth of the Trinity and the Godhead being visible in Christ is glorious and it's amazing in and of itself. But through the work of salvation, Jesus brings us into unity with the triune God. He brings us into that spiritual oneness that the Trinity has found in Christ. Remember, we have read this from John 17 a couple times recently because we had night of prayer, I read it, and we read it related to the resurrection uh, message on Easter Sunday. But John 17, 20, Jesus said that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I and you, that they also may be one in us, plural, in us, that the world may believe you sent me. So we know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're one in the body of Christ, and then somehow we get slipstreamed in. If you ask, how does all that work? Because I've had kids ask me that and say, I don't know. <laughs> you like that answer? I can't tell you. There's a lot of things that you can't tell anyone. You can get as theologically profound as you want, and you'll probably end up at the same starting point as you started explaining it. How can God be three and one, and how do we get put into this oneness? Now, even though Christ is a literal physical body, he also is a spiritual body. You ever seen the paintings of like Jesus, and it's like tons of little people uh, put in there. That's, that's all of us, our brothers and sisters in Korea and Africa and Asia and all around the world. We're all one part of the body. So Jesus is a 
physical body, yes, but he's also this spiritual body that we're all part of. So by faith in the blood and the atonement of Christ, we're brought into the body of Christ in the spiritual sense. But when we see Jesus face to face, we'll see all the fullness of God in the body of Jesus. But we're already in him spiritually in his body. How does all that work? I don't know. Again. But Paul adds an important truth and encouragement at the end here in verse 10, not the end of the chapter, but just the end of our, our text tonight. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. We are complete in Christ. This makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that we would be complete in Christ. We have many needs in this room. If you all started spouting off your needs, we'd be here all night until way into the tomorrow. We have a lot of needs. We have a lot of flaws. The sooner we admit them, the better off we are, right? We have gaps. But we've been saved by a Savior that has no need of anything. He doesn't have any gaps. Jesus has no needs. He has no flaws. He has no issues. He's in full control of the entire universe. Every atom, everything, every thought, he owns it all. He's not losing any sleep. He's never had a worry. He's never had a fear. He's never had a doubt. He has none of that stuff. He is the fullness of fullness, if you will. He's the power over all powers. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He's the absolute essence of perfection and purity. We can say, boy, this is really pure, but really we've never met anything pure, 100% pure in our lifetime, except for the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And maybe the book, that you're, well, definitely the book you're holding in the spiritual sense. There's nothing to add or contribute to the power and completeness of Christ. There's nothing to add to Jesus. Nothing. But he adds everything to us, doesn't he? He adds everything to our weaknesses, our incompleteness. Understand that in eternity future, we're already seated complete, according to Ephesians 2.6, and other places as well. But here and now, our salvation, our, I'm sorry, our salvation is complete while we're being completed. Does that make sense? Our salvation is, we're sealed into the day of redemption. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's complete, but we're still an unfinished product, aren't we? Even though our salvation is complete, and those two remain separate until you go and meet the Lord face to face after you pass from this life into the next. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, I've mentioned it recently. One of my favorite little two-word sentences in the Bible, it says, Be complete. Here Paul says, you are complete. He's talking about two different things. Our salvation is complete, but we are being completed. Paul said, not that I've already attained, right? We're still an unfinished work, just like our church is not a finished work. We have a lot more potential. We have a lot more things that God can do and will do with us. You have more potential. Your family has more potential. We haven't reached any plateaus. We're being completed, but our salvation is complete. Now, that's a good source of comfort, right? The one thing we need the most is complete. It's kind of like, you know, if you're doing financial planning or something, like, all right, the retirement thing's out of the way. We got that done. Now we can work on this, that, and the other, right? 
the eternal parts complete. But back to the beginning, our work as growing individually and growing collectively. Now that, that's, be, that's being worked out. But he says, and you are complete, your salvation is complete, and he's the head of all principalities and powers. Why is that important? Um, the completion only happens as we abide in him and as we're brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit uh, individually and us collectively as the body of Christ but we're to rely on him, we're to be fed by him, we're to be loved by him, we're to be renewed by him, we're to be protected by him. And why would we not? Why would we not do that? That our Savior, our God, is over all the principalities, he's over all the power. He's not worried about Vladimir Putin or China's prime minister or the United Nations or our president, or anybody else. He's not worried about any of that stuff. He has no limits. You can call up billionaires and uh, the government asks for money, they're going to hang up on you, right? You, God's not going to hang up on you. Well, if you call up asking for billions, that's not what he's saying. Say, you, you want my help, that's, but I want you to do my will. He's over everything. He has no limits. We'll close with Psalm 18:2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, and whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, you're complete. He goes, why are you trying to find, don't try and find completeness in the world. You have everything you need in Jesus your salvation, but also what you need spiritually. And your God is over all principalities and power. You don't have to worry about the Roman Empire or all the world empires or what's going to happen to me in five years or ten years. God has your hand. God has your life in his hands. Amen? He has your life. Paul says, I want you to grow in love, grow in your walk, and be confident that if Jesus is the Lord of your life, then you've got nothing to really worry about. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again tonight for just quieting our minds, if even just for this time this evening, just to hear from you. Lord, these aren't my words. You gave them to Paul, and, and Lord, I'm just passing them along. But I pray, Lord, that they would indeed fortify the faith of each person here, that we'd grow in love first for you, but also one another, that we'd, Lord, grow in a, in a walk of faith, taking steps of faith, believing in what we're meditating on, what we're thinking about. Lord, help us to turn off the distractions that we hear more from you and, and more and more that uh, that spiritual depth is met that only you can meet in our inner man. And Lord, lastly, we pray that uh, we would be comforted by knowing that all the fullness of the Godhead has our rear guard and also is going before us, that we're safe in your hands Lord, we pray that uh, you would be our stronghold and our fortress and everything that's needed in this room. And I, Lord, even now, I pray that uh, needs are met even tonight, in the next few days, Lord, as you just minister to each person. But we would take the answered prayers and, Lord, even grow more in our love for you and for one another and a lost and dying world. We thank you for this time this evening. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.